Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how are you this morning? Well, I am I am riding high after the Cleveland Browns clinched uh, their second playoff berth in 21 years. So it's it's a it's a great day in Cleveland. And I usually have something clever political joke to say, but this was this was more important. So <laughs> Okay. Well, I understand this time of year being being a football fan. Not not a not a Browns fan, but I I certainly can can appreciate that coming. Which is strange, of course. So. You're you're always a contrarian. You're that, a Pittsburgh fan while you lived in Cleveland. That's so. right. That's well, you know me. <laughs> anyway. Well, we've had a we've had a little bit of a break. From the show, we took our annual one-week break last week, and of course, the news did not stop coming, and we have a lot of things to talk about today, both on our regular show and in the midweek show for supporters that comes out on Tuesday. We're going to be talking about a bunch of rulings about Donald Trump's eligibility to be on primary ballots the migrant caravan approaching the United States and some immigration issues, Supreme Court not taking up Trump's immunity from prosecution claim, jumping the D.C. circuit there. A little bit about Harvard and its president, Claudine Gay, and the problems she's gotten herself into, some trade stuff, some polls, a bunch of predictions. We've got a lot coming up, and I think we should probably just Get right to it, Jay. So why don't we start yeah. with those with those eligibility claims for Donald Trump? Yeah. So our first story breaking just last night, Maine's Democratic Secretary of State uh, removed President, former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot, citing the Constitution's insurrection clause. This is the first election official to take action unilaterally um, uh, on this this issue. The decision follows a ruling earlier this month by the Colorado Supreme Court that booted Trump from the Colorado primary ballot. And then also breaking earlier this week, a non-decision essentially by the Michigan Supreme Court not to accept jurisdiction from a ballot challenge there where the Court of Appeals uh, dismissed the case to have Trump removed from the ballot, largely on the grounds that the court reasoned that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was not self-executing. You needed Congress to do something in order to to affect the removal. So that's where we stand right now is Trump off in Colorado, off in Maine, although there will be obviously some, some challenges to the Maine decision. It wasn't a court decision. Again, this is a secretary of state who made the call. And there are, are other cases going forward, I believe in California. Um, gosh, I, I, I should have had list teed up here, but. Actually, in California, uh, the secretary of state there uh, declined to remove Trump from the ballot. And she, okay. she said that uh, one of the things she mentioned along those lines was that, you know, it's it's not something her office takes lightly. And it's not as simple as the requirement that a person be at least 35 years old to be president. And I think that's an obviously right. a, a fair point, certainly. Yeah. So so with that, Mike, I guess we're, we're what are your thoughts on 
where this goes next. Obviously, I think this this ends up at the U.S. Supreme Court, although I you could make an argument that maybe it doesn't. But your your thoughts on uh, the Maine and uh, Michigan decisions? Well, I don't see how it can't end up at the Supreme Court simply because we can't just have every individual state. I think well, they, they could they could decline yeah. to accept jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> think how the, it could happen, but I don't think the court. Well, yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> right, there's a mechanism by which it could could not end up because the court can choose not. But I think the court will, and rightly so, because the situation we have now is is not. Uh, a good one at all, to say the least. And so obviously in the California and the Colorado decisions are less consequential politically because those are states that Donald Trump would likely get no electoral votes were he the nominee. But the main decision, a little bit different, even though there aren't a lot of electoral votes there, Maine splits its electoral votes. And I believe last time Donald Trump got one. And so that's a little more consequential. But, you know, every every vote counts there. Well, apparently. Yeah. But 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 I think <laughs> I think that, you know, as we talked about before, I believe that there are good arguments to be made on both sides of this. Uh, there, There's a lot of gray area. It's not as if Donald Trump took up arms literally against the government, charged the Capitol with musket and AR-15, whatever. That that would be a clear cut case. And, and there is so much gray area here. And as I said, you know, when we talked about this the last time, that given the amount of uncertainty about a number of elements of this case, because number one, we have to determine whether or not under the insurrection clause, the president is an officer of the United States. Now, the common sense understanding would be yes, but there have been plausible arguments made that, well, maybe yeah. not. Secondly, and we've discussed that yeah. because in the Constitution, it seems to set aside president from other officers of the United States. Yes, although it can be, inferior re officers it can be well. reasonably argued that that would that would be nonsensical. And it's sort of a rule of statutory interpretation that is there if there is a nonsensical interpretation, you you discard that one for you one to actually it. make. <laughs> exactly. So but that's only one of the issues. The second one, then, is even if we assume that the president is an officer of the United States, if Don, did Donald Trump engage in insurrection or rebellion? Well, you need to take a look at what is insurrection, what is rebellion and what exactly does it mean to engage in that? And even if he didn't, did he give aid and comfort to enemies of the United States? These are not clear issues and you pile these three main issues one on top of the other and i think anyone should be troubled to have a secretary of state or an individual you know an individual state supreme court to make these decisions this is something that is crying out for a clear and definitive interpretation from the Supreme Court. And I'm sure that's what we're going to get in, in short order. What do you think, Jay? I think the court probably will, you know, I I would say, yeah, 80-20. I'm not 100% still. But the court will will weigh in eventually. I guess the, the question for me, and this is could have a curious one, is, is you get into weird questions of what are questions of fact versus questions of law, right? Typically, the U.S. Supreme Court does not sit as a, a trial court, if you will, determining, you know, who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth, what happened. 
but just reviews legal decisions from lower courts that have have made those factual determinations. I guess I'm a little concerned in that there are probably some factual findings that would need to go into a determination of insurrection. Not entirely. I think I think there's ways you can decide it entirely on legal grounds. You could just say, look, insurrection is this, and, and this was not an insurrection. Um, but you think some maybe you need some so either whether it's stipulated facts or or some you know predicate factual finding uh, before you kind of get into those questions. Now now again, like what the Michigan appellate court did, saying, look, it's not self-executing. Okay, that's a pure legal question that can go up directly. But I other otherwise, I think I think there there is sort of a troubling. You don't. What I'm saying is, I you don't necessarily get there with a, a clean record. And, and my my concern is that the Supreme Court would not want to jump into what could be perceived as fact finding. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it is sort of a mixed a mixed issue. Uh, I I I would if, argue if differently. Me. I don't think that they have to do any fact finding here. They, if they make a determination as to, number one, whether or not that uh, the insurrection clause is self-executing, uh, number two, they make a determination. Right, that's an easy way out, yeah. Right. Number that's two, they make a determination as to whether or not the president is an officer of the United States under the insurrection clause. And That's number, another one, And yep. number three, they make a determination as to what constitutes insurrection rebellion giving aid giving aid and comfort to the enemies thereof that wouldn't involve any of the facts of the case and then they could just send that back down saying here are the here are the guidelines and go ahead and figure this out and i think that would be a reasonable way for the court to handle it and i hope that's what they do yeah i think i think the third one you do get into some some factual determinations How so? which as you said what the court could say we'll send it back down okay but that doesn't solve your problem. And also, I'd say that in the main instance, it almost seemed like the uh, Secretary of State was uh, specifically attempting to try to tee it up for the Supreme Court because she, in fact, she suspended the uh, she said, I, I will suspend the effect of my decision until the Superior Court rules on any appeal and the time to appeal has uh, expired. So it sounds like basically yeah. pushing the court to decide this, which I think is a, is certainly a good thing because we have a number uh, of additional challenges of uh, along these lines. I believe there are something like. Uh, active lawsuits in 14 states. Originally, there were something like 30, a number of them have been dismissed. And so this definitely needs to get ironed out before the primaries, which are coming very quickly. I think uh, Maine's or Michigan's is, I believe, in the end of February, which obviously is yeah. not that far off. Well, you could you could make the argument that, well, yes and no. You could, you could, it does, it's not easy, but that look, it, it's one thing to say um, uh, Trump will be allowed on the ballot, but is subject to, right? He kind of does so at his own peril, possibly being disqualified further down the line. That that has a bigger protection as opposed to you look, you can't, you're not going to be able to be on the ballot and making that determination now. Well, now that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't help, because then if he is disqualified, how do you how do you get someone else in? Now, typically, there's there are mechanisms in most states to allow substitutions. But no, I, that, I'm not I'm not saying that's an easy route, but you're saying 
uh, ha- have the name. Yeah, I'm saying as a practical matter, sure. I don't know that this there will be a definitive decision on this before some primaries actually start happening. I don't see why not. I mean, uh, that I know on December 27th, the Colorado Republican Party appealed uh, that that state Supreme Court ruling. And, there, and there's no reason why the court couldn't uh, take this up in, in an expedited an expedited manner. This is I think I can't see any reason why the court would need would need a month or so to deliberate on this. Well, because it's a really, really big question. This is why, you know, both sides would argue, listen, we, you know, we need time to to brief, to set this for oral, oral argument. There would be rafts and rafts of, of amici showing up. But those aren't necessary. And, and, and look, it's a it's a big it's a big, you know, constitutional crisis type type decision. So I, I think the court could could well say we're not going to be bound by your state ballot deadline. Um, you know, we're going to take our time and, and, you know, we're not going to rush this. Well, it's 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 a big question, but it's not, I would argue, an incredibly complex question. And so I, I don't think the court would need to rush. Certainly it's not. It seems to me entirely likely that the court will reach a decision well in advance of any of the voting. And certainly you're right. You could you could certainly have a situation where Donald Trump's name is printed on the ballots. And but but I don't see there being any problem with a decision before before sometime in, like I said, the late February when when Michigan has its primary election. So but when that decision comes down and I think it will come down, the court, I am almost certain, will rule in such a way that Donald Trump's name will appear on all of the primary ballots. And I think that's the correct ruling. Yeah, I would I would uh, tend to agree with you there as well. But uh, but we'll see. And that's something we talked about. We we talked about now. Different question would be if Donald Trump were actually convicted of insurrection by by somebody, obviously, in a court of law, then that would be a different question. But as I've said before, even though I am obviously not a fan of Donald Trump, and I think he's just uh, horrific for (laughs) America, that does not mean that the voters should not be allowed to choose that horrific candidate unless he is clearly disqualified. Yeah. Democracy means giving the voters what they want good and hard. There you go. H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken. Yep. All right. Um, Any other any other thoughts on this one before we move on, Jay? No, no. Otherwise, and look, it's going to I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. How so? Well, well, one, I mean, you're going to have uh, other secretaries of state or state Supreme Courts or whomever. Right making decisions as we get closer and closer to primaries. Which, of course, so they have to do. I, I mean, they, they need. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Just based on the, the calendar, based on on the, the situation on the ground, it's going to get worse before, we get, before it gets better. And then then the other piece is I think there will be very much a I mean, it's been a continuing campaign from the, the likes of Sheldon Whitehouse and, and so forth to to discredit the Supreme Court to uh to call into question the the um uh, legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And I think this that will heighten this this will heighten those those decisions. And a, a decision by the court saying that Trump should remain on the ballot would be will be viewed in some quarters as look, plainly this is all corruption and and uh, uh 
you know, justices who were appointed by Trump should recuse themselves, et cetera. Sure. So, I, absolutely. That that's the game. That's what I'm saying, where yeah. it's, it's going to get it's going to get ugly. Yeah. yeah. And certainly that's the game on both sides. Right. Donald Trump himself has been not shy about saying that any decision that goes against him in any way, shape or form is clearly the result of corruption, even a presidential. Uh, well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was an interesting argument that one of the attorneys and I forget which case presented. I hadn't thought about this, but it was I wanted to mention it kind of clever. The argument was that. Donald Trump is ineligible under the 22nd Amendment because it says that no person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice. And so this attorney's argument is, well, Donald Trump is claiming he's been elected to the office right. twice. He won. So therefore, not a, yes. clearly not not an argument that's going anywhere. But I give it points for originality, I got to say. So that's an interesting argument. But anyway, all right, well. We will have more on this as events merit, and they certainly will in, in the coming weeks. Moving on to a different issue, uh, immigration. A, there's this migrant caravan of somewhere around 7,500 people headed toward the southern border of the U.S. Most of the migrants originally from Central America, Cuba, Venezuela, I think even some from Haiti. Uh, and some of these caravan members allegedly are hoping to stay in Mexico. Many, of course, would like to end up in the United States. Now, this week, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with Mexican, Mexican, Mexican President Obrador to discuss how to slow the flow of migrants into the U.S. And according to officials, so somewhere around 10,000 crossings per day last week. Uh, and following that meeting, the administration said that Mexico shared its plans to crack down on smugglers who've been very important in moving large numbers of migrants to the borders. Now, Mexican officials told the media that the discussions also focused on economic considerations and the structural root causes of this surge in migration. And also, I'll point out, last week, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson sent a letter to President Biden in which he wrote that the southern border was being overrun, called the situation a catastrophe that's caused unspeakable human tragedy for migrants as well as U.S. citizens. Now, Johnson urged Biden to take executive actions to stem the tide, including the ending of the so-called catch and release policy of releasing migrants claiming asylum into the community while they're awaiting a hearing as opposed to detaining them or turning them away. He called for the ending of the practice of granting parole, which allows non-citizens temporarily to enter the U.S. to groups of migrants and saying it should only happen on a case-by-case -case basis. He said Biden should work with Mexico to, restate the, to reinstate that remain in Mexico policy for migrants applying for asylum, as well as to expand expedited removal for migrants who can't demonstrate eligibility for asylum. He also said something about restarting border wall construction, this kind of a thing as well. And finally, Johnson said Biden can actually do this under his authority under Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which authorizes the president to suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens whose entry he finds would be detrimental to the interests of the United States. And it's worth mentioning that in 2018, Trump versus Hawaii, the Supreme Court ruled that that section, uh, in its words, I love this phrase, exudes deference to the president in every clause. It entrusts him uh, the decisions as to whether or when to suspend entry, whose entry to suspend, for how long and on what conditions. 
And so it gives the president in the court's words ample power to impose entry restrictions in addition to those elsewhere enumerated in the INA. And so there you go, Jay. There's a lot of immigration stuff in that. What's your read on all this? I think the the Biden administration uh, is realizing that it's got to address this somehow. The numbers are just too big. The story won't go away. And and when you do consider the, the magnitude, and again, if, if you think back a year or two ago when the first surge, the the response was, well, this is just seasonal. This is seasonal, parentheses, you idiot. Um, uh, so I, I think they realized, no, it, it's not seasonal. Uh, 10,000 a day. I live in a city of roughly 50,000 people. So it, it's like a, a, a new city being added once a week. If you count up the, the um, number of, of migrants who have crossed the border, and these are just the, the documented encounters, right? There's still, there's still a, a, a number of, of getaways that aren't counted in there. I think it was 6 million. Does that sound right? In the last, since Biden took office. Again, that's, that's half the state of Ohio and bigger than, than a lot of, of states. These are, these are tremendous numbers. And I, I'm, I'm not sure why there's been the, the unwillingness to, to, to take these, these sort of steps, particularly, uh, again, the Remain Mexico seems to be the, the smartest. The, the asylum system is broken. And I think you can argue, well, okay, that has to be fixed statutorily. But there's proposals out there to do that. Um, and I think as a lot of these, these bigger city mayors, starting to, you know, the, the crisis is starting to hit them. There's, there's become more um, uh, concern in the White House that this is something that, that is going to need to be addressed. Yeah, I think the reason why, or at least a big part of the reason why it hasn't been addressed is that, and you say this a lot, Jay, both sides want the issue to run on as opposed to yeah. find some sort of solution. Yeah. But also, there but, are- But I'm wondering at this point, why, why do Democrats want the issue anymore? Well, you know, I- I think that's becoming more and more of a live question, right, in certain areas. And I, yeah. I would I mean, it argue, used to be, I guess that my, I'll answer my own question. The answer used to be, well, because it's, it's fun to be able to paint the other side as, as, you know, xenophobic bigots and anti-Hispanic and so forth and just generally cruel and uncaring. But I think that, that argument is easier to make when the numbers are a lot lower. I don't think so. I- I think that it's the same argument. It just creates more. If you have, if there is one person who's in, who needs asylum for whatever reason, a legitimate asylum seeker who's been persecuted, that's awful. If there are a hundred, it's, it's even worse. But the question is, it's not, well, if you're, if you're not letting them in, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you come up with the capacity? And that's the issue. And so there are plenty of people in this country, sad to say, who are xenophobic, who don't believe that that people coming in from Central America should be allowed into this country because, well, for various reasons. And that's that's unfortunate. But I don't think it's I don't think it's a bad argument to make. And I think that's really at a heart of a, a lot of the certainly concern I have is that there are there are some very important factors driving this incredible upswing in encounters in the last in, in in migration in the last few years, some horrific stuff happening in Central America, and it's it's part of it should be I think part of our DNA as a country to want to take in. 
people who are are fleeing persecution, right? And and that's that's what's more American than that. The problem, of course, is that we don't have the capacity to do do it in in, in any kind of efficient, reasonable way, right? That's that's the problem. And, and so, just saying, well, we're just going to turn away people without any kind of a plan. That there's the rub, right now. If I were if I were Joe Biden, I, I think at this point, I, well, I think I, I think the plan is you remain in Mexico uh, till your immigrant till your asylum hearing. Well, that that's fine, but you know that requires a certain amount of cooperation from the Mexican government, obviously, and uh, not only that, but there are concerns about safety of these folks, and I think reasonable concerns, right? And and so you can't just you can't just push aside the humanitarian concerns, right? No, but I, I also think that there's, to some extent, uh, has the administration exacerbated the humanitarian concerns by signaling that, you know, once you once you make it here, you're in. And I think I think that's been the signal, or it's certainly been the signal that's been received. That's certainly yeah, and that, that, and I think that's that that's fair. To you say. know, so you so I think that's that's part of it is is you know you could communicate much more clearly saying, listen, please don't do this. Uh, and part of that is if you if you you know do this, we're going to send you back or or you know require you to, to remain in Mexico or or you know apply from some other third country. And I don't think I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, so something that hit me the other day, right? Is is sort of the, the parallel. Now, this this doesn't necessarily say you know U.S. policy is correct, but shows sort of a I don't know selective view of this. If you consider what's happening in Gaza, where you have, you know, all these refugees who are trying to get out, trying to flee, and and who I think would, by any definition in any book, qualify as as asylum seekers, and and the the countries around them, particularly I would say Egypt, has has not been willing to let them in, and and you know we have this situation here where. Conditions in in many places in South and Central America are are terrible, but I'd say they're not as they're they're not a an active war zone. Um, I, I mean, I think that's just you know just worth considering when you when you think about what is what is the obligation of a a country to take in asylum seekers. And I would so, argue. I think, well, I think no, there's, I, I, there's I, one more thing is, is the qualifications for asylum. Right? We've got we've got them written down and and it's it's pretty much agreed that a good 90% probably even higher of the folks who are coming in would not meet those qualifications will not meet those qualifications when they have a hearing that's fine but they still get a hearing and that's yeah. that's that's their right under under the law and and they should get a hearing now we don't have a system that is set up to give them a hearing in any sort of an efficient uh, expeditious way we have a backlog i believe of over i want to say over 2 million cases at this point and and so i i feel like on the democratic side the question is well what are what are Republicans offering aside from just saying well let's just close the doors and keep them closed and i don't really hear a whole lot. Now, I think it would be worthwhile to consider the president using his authority under under was it 212F that I mentioned and I think you can make a case that Joe Biden could just say, "You know what? We're just we're just halting 
all asylum claims, all border entry until such a but but there would need to be some there would need to be the Republicans giving something on that. If you want to say, well, our system is broken. Well, okay, we'll halt entries for a while or slow them in some way that's not discriminatory. That was the problem in the Trump versus Hawaii case, at least among the four dissenters. But what are we going to do to fix the system? And that needs to be a second part of it. So maybe that means maybe that means a lot more money to beef up the system so we can clear that backlog and we can hear these cases. Right. Maybe it means. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's fine. Um, and I I wouldn't object to that. And I think most Republicans wouldn't. The bigger piece is and this this has been the argument since like the 1980s. Right. Is that the border security has to come first. Because otherwise you you have a continuing incentive of, of look, even if you're, you know, once once you're here, you're, you know, you're you're less likely. You know, I mean, you sort of you sort of gotten what you wanted and that that incentive still exists. And, and you can say, listen, OK, you get to you get to U.S. soil and you're there for a good two years uh, pending pending a hearing and then. You know, maybe the hearing goes your way. Maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't, well, you get sent back and, and well, then you come across again and then you get another couple of years. I, so that's that's the problem. And I think that the argument the Republicans have made for years is we're we're OK in, in talking about path to citizenship, those types of things. But we've got to secure the border first, because if you start having the path to citizenship or or quicker reform. Before that, you're just going to encourage more and more people to cross the border illegally. I think that's a disingenuous argument. Uh, And and the reason why is that uh, the reason why is that practically as an on the ground, that's certainly correct. But the argument that's being made politically, and that's what I'm talking about, the disingenuous part, because the argument is, well, let's secure the border first and then we'll talk about this other stuff. But what's almost certain to happen is that. The, if if the Democrats say, OK, we'll agree to more border security, keeping more people out, then the second part will never happen. That's why politically it has to happen. Together. Why, why do you think, why do you because, think that, I guess, is that, I mean, again, the asylum things, we still have places to, to process. Uh, but, but I'm so saying politically can, can, it has to happen together. Because if it doesn't, then then Democrats are just going to be giving Republicans something they want and Republicans are just going to end up not giving Democrats anything. That's how politics works. You know, that's how the sausage is made, as you like to say, Jay. And so so it would be it would so, be- so. So, OK, but, but here's I guess here's what, here's the way I look at it, though. Right. I mean. If you want to say contemporaneous, I, I would be OK with that, too. Uh, but the, the typical argument has been let's let's come up with you know we won't the democrats will not vote for any sort of immigration reform and and i don't think they i don't think the democrats want uh, simply uh, more uh, administrative judges to handle asylum claims i i don't think that's that's the agenda so i mean i that's if if that were the case i think there would there would be a, a deal already um, I, I don't think so I, at all I, I just, I, I don't think so at all. You know, I think uh, John asked the question here, who's, who's with us, how much border security first is enough, right? It'll never be 100% secure. And I think- that, It'll never be 100%. Right, but I think that for at least uh, a significant uh, number of Republicans, at least large enough in the House to stop up anything, it's just an issue to run on. 
And they don't really necessarily care about border security or immigration. They just care about having that issue and fanning the flames of nativism and whatever it is that. No, no. I'm well. I, I think that's a little disingenuous. Okay. Because again, this isn't a matter of of you know one or two people. This this is millions and millions of people. Again, as we said, ten thousand a day. It's a humanitarian crisis. No matter how how you how you look at it. Uh, and part of what is driving that humanitarian crisis or this this movement of these many people into the country this quickly uh, is is the is the idea that the border is essentially open and and it is I mean Nan and I would agree you you can't have a hundred percent security uh, but at this point we have just about zero percent I think that's and, I think that's wrong that that's hyperbole it's not about zero percent it's not an open border uh, so. I would disagree fundamentally well, these, these, with that. Well, I guess 10,000 10, a day, uh, what, what percent is that? Well, I, I don't know that you can really put it in a percent, but I think using language like we have open borders and no border security is not at all helpful and not at all accurate. I certainly agree with well, you I that guess, border me, security me, could be better. Let me push on that a little bit. Why, why, isn't it, why isn't it accurate? Because the idea that the border is open is just false. There are plenty of people who are turned away all the time. The bigger problem is that there is this surge of migrants who want, understandably, want to flee uh, horrible conditions in their home countries for the United States. I certainly don't blame them for that. But the idea that we're just op- the border is open, that's a that's a dog whistle kind of phrase that's not useful at all. Now, if you want to, again, if you want to say that, well, border security is not at all sufficient to deal with the, the crisis that we have, I would absolutely agree with you 100%. But I can't, can't countenance the sort of what I believe is inaccurate, inflammatory phraseology that you were using there. All right. Well, yeah, I guess my question is, if, if someone approaches and crosses the border illegally, what happens to them? And, and if the answer is, well, they're, they're let go on their own parole to come to a hearing a couple of years from now, that that that's strikes me as as, uh, as as essentially being open, that, that, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure how many people are turned away and sent back. If if that is a big number, we're not seeing it, and it's certainly much smaller than the number of people who are are coming in. Right. We're not exactly talking past each other. We just have a fundamental disagreement here. And if you want to use the term "open," that's fine. I'll just I'll just sort of lodge my objection for the right. I understand, I understand that. Yeah, the, the yeah on the Democratic side that they've viewed op- the idea of open border that that as a as some sort of a dog whistle. But I think at, at some point, you know, there has to be some sort of concession to to reality, right? I mean, this was kind of like when when the silly Mayorkas comments, you know, about well, the border is secure. Well, of course, of course, it's not, it's not secure. No, um, no. Well, I mean, again, that gets into these uh, these semantic games of what do we mean by secure? Now, if you argue that, well, the people are coming in for asylum claims and they're being let in and paroled, and does that mean the border isn't secure? Well, not necessarily, right? Then you have to look into the issue of, well, how many, what percentage of these people show up for their asylum hearings? What I mean, it, what I'm saying is it becomes a far more complex issue that people want to just boil down into a little phrase that you can fit on a bumper sticker or on a tweet. And it just, that just fundamentally mischaracterizes the, the, com- the complexity of the, of the border security issue. Let, let me just, I'll just, I'll just close with this. If you compare, say, Egypt uh, and, and Gazans trying to get into Egypt, that border is secure. They're not getting in. 
They're not coming in. They're not being getting asylum hearings. They're not being put on parole. They're not getting in. That's that's what I think a lot of people mean by secure. Is is it that you the, the country can stop people from coming in? And and at this point, we are unable and or unwilling to do so. I think in part because we're not so Egypt, I, we're the United States, and we hold ourselves to a higher humanitarian standard, as well we should. But, but we also have to hold ourselves to our own laws. Well, I don't think laws are being – what laws are being – if you're making an argument that – The illegal immigration piece. But it's not illegal immigration if somebody is making an asylum claim. And under our system of laws, it is lawful for these people to be making claims to be paroled into the United States while their claim is being adjudicated. So that there's nothing unlawful there. You might not like it, and I may agree with you, but that doesn't make it unlawful. I think that's an important distinction to make here. All right. Fair enough. Okay. All right, then. Well, let's move on to well, actually coming back to Donald Trump, right? Uh, Supreme Court, not uh, in the last, I think, not a little more than a week ago. This is a story. We- yeah, so this, this is another, in essence, a non-decision, right? Is that the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the special counsel's request that it decide immunity, Trump's, Trump's presidential immunity from prosecution for the January 26th, 26th, January 6th insurrection riot early on, right? The idea being that this would this would hasten the process. It would it would essentially remove that, you know, it would well determine either that that Trump could use that defense or or could not um and and would speed up the the ability to, to prosecute. And the Supreme Court I think wisely declined to do so. And and instead said, let this. Well, they didn't really say anything, right? It's just a non-decision, unsigned, no dissents. So that that tells you there were there were less than than five members of the Supreme Court who thought they should hear this case immediately. Uh, so you know what happens then is it it now goes to the more normal course of if you go through the trial court, go to the appeals court, and at that point gets teed up for for the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, at this point, now the, the trial court judge actually ruled on this. And so the D.C. Circuit, I believe, has agreed to hear it. And they have agreed to hear the appeal on an expedited basis. Oral arguments are scheduled for January 9th. And I point out that Jack Smith noted in, in making a request to the Supreme Court that it was an extraordinary request. And I agree with you that the court was right to deny it, given the fact that it seems that the D.C. Circuit is really going to deal with this in an expedited fashion. So it will certainly come to the Supreme Court, but I don't think there's necessarily any compelling reason to leapfrog the D.C. Circuit on this. And I also find the arguments from some of the sort of further left progressive press that, oh, my God, this was a major victory for Donald Trump. And it's this horrific non-decision by the court. I'll point out that, you know, the three liberals on the court could have dissented. That sometimes happens in these instances if, if there's strong feelings, but that was not the case. And so I think this is, you know, perfectly Perfectly okay. The thing to me that's a little more interesting is the Donald Trump's immunity argument in the first place. 
And I agree with the trial judge here that, you know, there there's no special immunity for presidents about criminal actions. Right. And I should point out the the Supreme Court has previously held that presidents are immune from civil liability, from actions that are related to their official duties as president. Now, they've never directly addressed the question of criminal liability. And also, you can certainly question whether or not some of the things Trump did or is alleged to have done can be seen as related to his official duties. And those are the sort of questions that a court would decide. And so I don't think there's any kind of blanket immunity here. This is just effort to delay the to delay the the proceedings until ideally in, in Trump's view after January of 2025 if he wins the election I wanted to get your take both I guess on that immunity claim as well as how you think this is going to affect the the trial dates and any potential ruling by uh, by a court so so the immunity claim I I think I I would one ten degree no it's it's certainly not a slam dunk it's i don't think there is a blanket immunity i i think there there it's arguable to say listen if i'm the president of the united states i am charged with seeing that the laws are faithfully executed and i believe that there has been election fraud i can i can advise my my vice president to do what I think would would have been a vain ministerial act, uh, and and you know that's that's within the, the the powers of the presidency. I'm not saying that 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 claim wins the day, right? I think there's a there's a whole, there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of dots that you need to connect there. But I'm I'm saying I don't think the immunity claim is is out and out frivolous. And, and also, Jay, on that, I'd point yes. out that immunity doesn't have to be blanket. You could say, well, Donald right, Trump right. has immunity for that, but not necessarily for Qualified trying to immunity. influence yeah. Yeah, to influence what state election proceedings and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah, that that is. I would say certainly, yeah, telling if, if the argument is, well, you know, it went, uh, went down to Georgia and told the secretary of state. You know, I need you to fabricate fraud, which is how how it's being read, right? And you can a conversation two different ways. One one is that Trump says, "Look, just find find me that you know the, the fraud because I know it's there, and I you know I just need you to, to point it out." Or uh, that the message is, "I want you to make stuff up in order to uh, essentially derail this otherwise legitimate elect- electoral process." And and again, that that comes down to sort of questions of fact, but. Agree. This this ends up before the um, uh, U.S. Supreme Court eventually, probably sooner rather than later, and we'll 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 see how it goes from there. I, I would also point out to the extent that from all the the Supreme Court conspiracy theorists had you had uh, you know the the uh, conservatives on the court wanted to just grant Trump that blanket immunity, they could have decided to take the case and and done so. And and that they didn't, I, I think, sort of belies the the conspiracy claims. I wouldn't but, wouldn't uh, go that far because if you're making a sophisticated conspiracy claim, you say that well, you put your thumb on the scale, but you don't right, exactly right. You don't want to you want to look like you're exactly. But but anyway, I don't I don't wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it Ken at one point that that said that yeah, there's all the they make all these decisions that would seem to go against their interests just so they can sort of lull everyone into a sense of false security. 
Well, that actually makes more sense, though, as how you know intelligent people would would do that sort of thing. And I don't I don't agree with that, but but certainly that that makes that seems more plausible to me. But than doing something crazy. But anyway, so I think the key point to me is every delay that the Trump team can get does potentially help them. I mean, the, the trial on the uh, January 6th charges is scheduled to begin on March 4th, but pre-trial, the pre-trial stuff has been put on hold while this immunity thing is being considered. There's also that documents case trial that's supposed to begin on May 20th, but there have been a number of delays in that. And, and every delay Certainly now it looks like these things are going to not happen before the primaries are over. And that's definitely, yeah. uh, I guess, a loss for Nikki Haley right at this point and a win for Donald Trump, because if Donald Trump can establish himself as the nominee, then that obviously helps him out considerably. I don't think that all of these trials will be able to be delayed until after January of 2025. Now, if that's the case, then I think it's fairly certain that if Donald Trump were to win the election, he would take whatever steps he could and some that maybe he couldn't. But he'd try anyway to try to get these federal charges withdrawn. But I don't think that's going to happen, at least in many of these instances. I want to get your take on that. Yeah. So I think um, I think the the way it would would have to work is is uh, now, again, this has never happened before. We have someone who is indicted before they're president, right? Or they were president, now they're not, and then they're indicted. The idea being that you can't indict a sitting president, you can only impeach him. And and then, you know, that president would be subject to criminal processes after they've left the office. Uh, I I think there's a, a strong argument that, you know, if you can't indict a sitting president, you can't convict a sitting president. And Congress would have to go through an impeachment process uh, at, at that point to remove Trump, which at that point, well, maybe you, who cares about the convictions anymore? Uh, but I think that's that's the way it, it ought to play out. Now, again, I'm, I'm spitballing a little bit because this has never happened. Well, just to be clear, but, though, it's there. There is not a there is not a law against not indicting. A, a no, no, no. It's just that's just the Justice Department has been the Justice Department policy. And it's a little um, bit different. And than, I think yeah, that's like, sort of yeah. let, let's say let, let's call it the you know, common understanding is that a sitting president couldn't be indicted just because of, of, of separation of powers issues. But like you said, it's a different question when when that there there is a person who may have been elected president but was indicted before he actually took the office, won the election. And that's yeah. a, that's a weird and I would guess that if something this is such a nightmarish kind of scenario, that probably what happened is uh, on his way out the door, uh, Joe Biden would uh, would appoint a special counsel to kind of continue the work. And then Donald Trump would appoint an attorney general who would fire that person. And there'd be this big let's just hope none of this actually happens because. Yeah. God. But, well, I, I would say, I mean, if you can't indict, then you can't convict just on the same separation of powers principles, right? That essentially what, what the, if I'm kind of putting the rule in the shorthand, it's sort of the court can't remove an elected president. I see what you're saying. I don't know. What only, only Congress through the impeachment process can remove an elected president. Uh, and then after that, they're subject to the, the jurisdiction of the court. Yeah, I see what you're saying. That's an interesting, interesting theoretical question that I hope remains a theoretical question, I'll say. 
But do you do you, do you agree, right, that Donald Trump will probably not be able to escape some sort of a some sort of a ruling on at least some of these what ninety one counts yeah. that he's been indicted on before uh, at least before November of uh, of next year. Yeah, I I do. And it's maybe a different question if there's already been, say, a decision that's been made by a court and then it, it's before an appeals court. Well, then that's that's already outside. I do. I do think that's I do think that's different if there is an actual conviction. Uh, and again, I'm 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 completely spitballing because. Sure. Hell, it's the Friday after Christmas <laughs> and I've been kind of, you know, yeah. I'm kind of on semi vacation. And, and and also more more importantly, none of you know, there's there's very scant precedent to actually look at. But I do think a, a conviction makes a difference. Now conviction, and then while you're on appeal, mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how that plays out, but I, I would agree it's different. I'm certain that the Donald Trump's appeals, even if he is convicted or anything, will not be anywhere close to being exhausted by uh, by the end of. Oh no, no, know, exactly. They'll go on for a long time. So, all right. Well, more on this later. I am certain because, <laughs> like I said, with 91, 91 uh, charges. There's definitely going to be a lot to talk about as this plays out. All right, you know, let's let's go. Let's do one more thing, Jay. I want to talk since we're talking about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, there and we usually are. Yeah, we usually are. One day, maybe we won't, but not for a while yet. I'm sure you've noticed. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. There have been a lot of opinion pieces in the last, I don't know, three, four, five, six months about. What would happen if Donald Trump wins in 2024? You know, most of them tend to be, well, he'd be in a far better position than he was in 2016 to kind of hit the ground running, right? You'd have this loyal cadre of MAGA people to kind of go on his vengeance tour and, you know, be a dictator, at least on day one, maybe not from day one. Right. But but also I'll point out that there's actually been some concern on the right, not about that so much, although there's been some of that as well, some former generals and other folks. like, But but more about some policy things, like, for instance, softening a support for Ukraine. That would probably happen if Trump is in the Oval Office in 2025. But more something that came up this last week, the Wall Street Journal raised another concern, and that's Donald Trump's trade policies. I mean, Trump has proudly referred to himself as tariff man. Of course, Trump proudly refers to himself. <laughs> Pretty much that's, you know, anything. Right. But but Trump is a big protectionist, right? And he said, uh, he said all kinds of stuff. He's, for instance, floated the idea of just a 10% general tariff on, well, everyone that's not in the U.S., as well as revoking normal trade relations with China uh, and, and, you know, all kinds of stuff. He said this idea from the Biden administration to negotiate a trade agreement with, I believe it's 13 countries in the Pacific Asia-Pacific region, the Indo-Pacific economic framework. So that will be dead on arrival in my administration. And this is, I think, a very significant concern, certainly. And Jay, I wanted to get your take on on this. I know you had a chance to look at that and consider this. What do you think about what would happen with trade in a potential second Trump administration? Does that concern you? Yeah, it concerns me. I mean, it concerned me in the first Trump administration. I, again, I'm I I hew to the more traditional Republican free trade uh, type type approach. I I would agree that 
in cases such as China, for example, where there is there is abuse of 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 American IP of you know abuse of the system, rampant cheating. I think taking actions there as a means to an end, right? The the end the end being free and fair trade. I think that's that's acceptable. I do, but protectionism I I don't see as being a a legitimate interest. Now the other legitimate interest I would put in that is maybe quasi protectionist, right, is ensuring that we have manufacturing capacity and capability to make the important things that we need, right? That that we're not overly reliant on someplace like China. So I, I think there's there's a there's a fair argument to be made that the trade policy that that both parties essentially pursued for the last 30 years is in need of, of revision. Absolutely. Because 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 part because part of that a lot of the the big premise behind that was that China was going to be a, a you know would play fair and the other premise was sort of that um uh, as as trade expanded with China so would democratic reform and and other general liberalization and also that the idea that nations that that trade with one another don't go to war with one another that that improving these trade relations would dampen any chinese expansionist tendencies and and that just hasn't has proven not to be the case yeah not at all and i think the biden administration has done a good job of sort of trying to balance these things. I know there was some concern on the right when, when Biden came into office that he was just going to remove all of the things that Donald Trump put on to China and so forth. But actually, the Biden administration has, you know, done some, added on some things of its own, recognizing exactly those sort of things that you're, that you're talking about. And, and I absolutely agree with you that we need to be concerned about rampant Chinese IP abuse and their not being willing to trade fairly the protectionism and the various barriers they put into place, as well as the importance of strategic, ensuring that we have access to strategic materials and manufacturing and that sort of thing. So, but then the problem comes when we're talking about what I think are just stupid things like a 10% across the board tariff on all non-U.S. products. That's just dumb. Right. But it sounds good at a rally. That's the sort of thinking, that's the sort of thinking that you know, led to the Smoot-Hawley tariff yeah. of the 1930s, which was which was disastrous. Exactly. Um, and to give you a sense uh, of how, anyone, how disastrous, the, the Tax Foundation, which is a sort of conservative business tax group. My kind of folks. Yeah, yeah. They said they did a, they did some calculation. They said if that Trump 10 percent tariff went into effect, it would raise the tax burden on American consumers and businesses by around 300 billion, shrink the U.S. economy by around half a percent and eliminate uh, more than half a million jobs. So this is not exactly the sort of thing you would want to do. And one would hope that this is just a sort of crazy thing that Donald Trump just says because he thinks it sounds good in a rally and that and that senior heads would prevail. But I think there's a good case to be made that, well, in a second Trump administration, there would be fewer senior heads to prevail. And so we definitely. Well, and that's that's my biggest concern um, is that, look, in the first Trump administration, he was surrounded not entirely, but enough by there were enough grownups in the room. I I don't know that any any more grownups would sign up for a second 
Trump term. Absolutely. And that is that I think. So, no, I, you know, in total, if, if you ask me, you know, where do I stand on this? I'm I'm less concerned about this, you know, the whole Trump will be a dictator and, and all that sort of stuff. And more concerned on this sort of just uh, really bad ideas and no one to steer him away and in general, you know, dysfunction. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. We have a lot more to talk about. I, I really wanted to get into the whole issue with Harvard President Claudine Gay, and we'll do that on the uh midweek bonus show. Also, I mentioned there is some interesting polling on how people feel about democracy and elections in the U.S. Not very good. <laughs> Shocker. And we also want to revisit our predictions, the predictions Jan and I made for 2023 and make some predictions for 2024. All of that's going to come up on the midweek supporter show. And uh, that's, of course, always goes out to supporters on usually Tuesdays. And if you're not already a supporter of the show, we hope you'll consider becoming one because without you guys, the podcast wouldn't be possible. In addition to getting that full length midweek show, you get ad free versions of everything we do. There's the opportunity to be part of the discord group and also the opportunity to uh, be part of the episode. We had a couple of listeners, Derek and John, who were with us today and kind of make comments and that sort of thing. So to find out more about all that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also support us on Venmo or at politics guys or through PayPal. As always, we have support links in our show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you would like to get that full length midweek show, but you can't support us financially right now, just send me an email. I'm Mike at politicsguys.com and I will take care of that for you. And finally, uh, we would like to close out this last show of 2023 with a an extra special thanks to our fantastic executive producers. They are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.